All right, there's some people in the back. Uh, they're going to be bringing you out a bag like this. And what you're going to do with this bag, it's a magic bag because you take it home like this and it comes back filled with cookies. But you're a part of this magic trick. So if you don't come back with cookies in it, the trick doesn't work. Now, what we're going to do next Sunday is when you bring when you bring the cookies back, so don't let me down, we're going to put them all in the back. And if you're a terrible cookie maker, don't put your name on the bag. You know, if it's like, I use all baking soda. I don't need any flour at all. Well, great. Uh, put them in the back. Uh, we'll play hockey with those. And, and we'll, we're going to eat them. And then whatever is left over after next Sunday, we used to do this. Like the last couple of years, we take all the extras and we take it out to the base and give it to the servicemen uh, who have to work on Christmas Eve. Somebody stole our idea this year. They've already scheduled it. And we're like, what? What's the deal with that? Seriously. So that, no, it's okay. Things still are. But all of our, we have new ones. It's okay. So this year, we're going to take all the extras. We're going to actually take them down to the Santa Maria Police Department and give them to the guys who have to work on Christmas Eve down there, which means you better not do anything dumb on Christmas Eve because they're going to be all hopped up on sugar, and they can catch you. Be fast. So welcome to Element. My name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here. If you don't own a Bible, there's a Bible in the back. You can have one. If you forgot one, you can use one. There are sermon notes on all the communion tables throughout the room. If you have a smartphone, you download an app. It is called Uversion. You click on Live and use Uversion. It'll bring us up a GPS in your smartphone. You will get the sermon notes and the verses and all the questions that go along with the message today. And when you read the notes, the notes actually have a lot of different things than what I talk about this morning in them, so I would encourage you guys all to read notes Day. Let's go. All right. Stanley reading God's Word. That's all I had was, was the cookie thing. It was very important. If you're going to the Hobbit today, make sure you show up at 4.30. Show up at like 4.40. It's gonna be, you're just not going to find a seat. Show up at 4.30. We're going to hand you raffle tickets. going to go inside to some film and theology, hand out some prizes, watch the movie, and then go home and hopefully not have a headache from the 3D. <laughs> this is Job chapter 6, verse 8, and it says, Oh, that I might have my request, and that God would fulfill my hope. Let's pray. Father, this morning I ask that we would be a people who understand that our hope rests in you, and what comes into our lives have, has been sifted through your hands, and that you in turn make us a people who live and understand and walk in your grace freely given to us. Amen. Have a seat. So we are hitting Christmas this year in the book of Genesis. I know it's like not the gift that you wanted, but that's what we're giving you is Christmas uh, in Genesis. Next year, we're actually going to talk and have this whole series about Jesus leading up into Christmas. Not that we don't always talk about Jesus anyway, but it's going to be actually focused on certain things about that. But this year in Genesis, you get Jacob and his crazy redneck family. You're welcome. That's how that works. Uh, Jacob is the third generation of faith in the living God. They've had some problems with this faith, but God continues to reveal himself to them and show himself to them, and God saves them. They have an imperfect faith, but it is in a perfect God. Now, last week, if you were here, what you saw is one man marries two sisters. There's a lot of problems right off the bat right there. And today what happened is baby making becomes a competition. Today you will see the birth of 12 children through four women and one man. This is many women pregnant in the same house at the same time. Now we believe Jacob's a believer. He doesn't go to hell, but he gets a pretty good taste of it with three to four women pregnant in the same home at the same time. They went over much better with you than it did in second service. I got a, oh, a couple of groans with that. It's just true. All right. 
Now, before we jump into today's text, what I got to do is spend a little bit of time, get you to understand how God intends for you and I to live. We, we are not supposed to live our lives in competition with everybody around us, but we are to be a constant blessing. This is what God calls Abraham to. It's what he calls us to, to be a blessing to those around them. Now, too many people today treat life like it's just a game. We've got to find ways to win. We've got to one-up somebody. But I'll tell you, God has already won. That's the point of the scriptures. And you and I get to mellow out and stop freaking out so much and just live in the victory that he has already done. Now, a couple of years ago at a Good Friday service, I talked to you guys about this old companion book they used to sell for the game of Monopoly. This was called the Monopoly Companion. On the cover, they had a picture of Mr. Monopoly. He looks like Mr. Magoo. If anybody knows what that looks like, but that's what he looks like. And Mr. Monopoly devotes all this time to help you learn how to win at the game of Monopoly. You know, maximize your Monopoly potential. And most of his tips have to do all with the financial bottom line, like which properties have the highest returns, and it's not boardwalk or park place because people don't land on those enough. He tells you when to stay in jail, like when everybody has hotels, you just stay in jail. You just stay there. You don't have to spend your money. But the number one strategy tip in this book that he gives has nothing to do with finances or timing. This is what he says. Be the kind of player other people want to sit next to at the game. Because Monopoly is not the kind of game that can be won with trades and deals and it all takes cooperation. Now, if you take this and extrapolate this into life, that's actually some good advice. People in life who cling to resentments, people who don't know how to handle disappointments, people with very long memories, people who don't know how to say, I'm sorry, people who sulk and pout and whine, they don't live the life that God calls them to live. We are to be the kind of people that other people would want to be around because we actually live lives of grace. See, because the scripture's word for how we are supposed to live is grace. We're to be this people of grace. And so we cultivate a gracious spirit as God saves us. And, and this doesn't happen in Genesis text today. It doesn't happen at all. It's really kind of sad what, what takes place. But life is not about winning or losing. It's about grace. And I'll give you two things as we begin about grace. Number one is this. When life goes poorly, when life goes wrong, when things don't go right, you still live gracefully. You still live gracefully. In the 17th century, Samuel and Susanna Wesley, this is John and Charles Wesley's parents, is the like church reformers back then. So Samuel and Susanna, they're at evening prayers, and Susanna doesn't say amen to her husband's prayer for William of Orange, who was then king of England. Now, aren't you glad people don't disagree with politics today, right? It doesn't happen anymore? Right. Okay. So, so he asked her, why did you say amen to my prayer? And she said, well, her sympathies lied with the deposed James II. This then turns into a game of, woman, you're going to do what I say, and you're going to say amen, which men never win. We just, we just cannot win that war right there. And so this is what she writes in her journal of what happened next. She says, he immediately kneeled down and imprecated the divine vengeance upon himself and all his posterity if he ever touched me or came into a bed with me before I had begged God's pardon and his for not saying amen to the prayer for the king. Wow, right? Like typical of a man to think that the greatest punishment he can inflict on his wife is depriving her of sex with him. Now, this stalemate, it actually lasts six months till a fire destroys two-thirds of their family home. Guys, I will tell you, things, when they don't go your way, it should not define your identity. We are to be a people of grace. We don't blame. We don't make excuses. We don't have self-pity. We understand grace that was freely given to us, and we freely give it to those around us. And the second thing in this is when things in your life actually do go right, when things go well, you still live gracefully. You live gracefully. In the book Team of Rivals, Doris Kearns Goodwin tells how Abraham Lincoln placed in his cabinet all of his rivals for the presidency. Now, no one has ever done this before. No one's really ever done it since. I mean, Obama isn't calling up Romney and going, hey, you want to take care of, of, of America's you know, fiscal policy? Doesn't happen, right? Not at all. Because cabinet posts are generally rewards for loyalty. 
Now, someone asked Lincoln, why would you do this? And Lincoln said he would, he, wouldn't th- he would never think of trying to deprive the country of these men's leadership when the country needed it the most. Now, the best story of this is his relationship with a guy named Edwin Stanton. In 1854, Abraham Lincoln is a lawyer. He's working in Springfield, Illinois. He's, in, he's invited to collaborate on one of the most prestigious cases he ever had. It was one of the, with one of the largest law firms in the country at that time. Again, this is the biggest case he'd ever had by far. And what he didn't know is that this uh, law firm actually only engaged him because they wanted to ingratiate themselves with the local Illinois judge. Now, in the middle of this, the star attorney for the high-powered you know, the law firm on the other side is this brilliant legal mind, and his name was Edwin Stanton. Frederick Douglass once wrote about Edwin Stanton, impoliteness was not one of his weaknesses. All right. So Lincoln, on the other hand, he's very keenly aware of his homely appearance, his uneducated background. When a political opponent once charged Abraham Lincoln with being two-faced, he actually responds, really, if I had two faces, do you think I'd be wearing this one? <laughs> so Stanton decides he's got no use for Abraham Lincoln whatsoever. Uh, he read none of Lincoln's briefs, answered none of his letters. As a matter of fact, when the, when the thing was supposed to go to court, Stanton, a law partner, shows up at Lincoln's hotel, and they just leave. And they left Lincoln there. He had to make his way to the, to the courtroom by himself. Now, Stanton would never confer with Lincoln, wouldn't eat with Lincoln, wouldn't plot strategy with him. At one point, Lincoln heard Stanton say to his colleague, where did that long-armed creature come from, and what can he expect to do in this case? His snubs grew so severe that Abraham Lincoln eventually withdrew from the case altogether. Now, you fast-forward five years after that, Abraham Lincoln, the ill-dressed, unkempt, long-armed local lawyer, is now president of the United States. Now, that's a win in anybody's book right there, right? Okay. Just, just check it. Edwin Stanton, he's the outgoing attorney general. His party is lost, and that has not made him any more gracious towards Lincoln. Twice in the letters to friends, he refers to the imbecility of Lincoln. In communicating with the Union General George McClellan, he says he called Lincoln the original gorilla, which is a slur against him. Stanton's own law partner said there was probably no man in the country towards whom Lincoln had reason to feel so much personal resentment. See, but so there's this war that takes place if you don't know when Lincoln is president, and it's not going very well. And so Lincoln needs someone to run the War Department, and he asks everybody, who should I get to run this? And almost everybody comes back and says, Edwin Stanton. And this is what Lincoln said. He goes, I made up my mind to sit down on all my pride and maybe a portion of my self-respect and appoint him to the place. And then how Lincoln treats Edwin Stanton becomes Civil War history. Uh, when Stanton joined the cabinet, Lincoln trusted in him. He confided in him. He leaned on him. He depended on him. Lincoln and Stanton couldn't be more opposite, but they had the closest working relationship that Lincoln had with anybody in his cabinet. And how does Stanton respond to this grace? He responds with loyalty and affection. A few years into the war, Stanton met his ex-law partner, George Harding, and he praises the recent state paper, thinking that Stanton actually wrote it. And Stanton says this, Lincoln wrote it, every word of it, no men were ever so deceived about a man as we. On April 14, 1865, Lincoln had, this is the day after Lincoln had been shot at Ford's Theater, and some of those famous words ever spoken at the death of a president were spoken. These are the words, now he belongs to the ages. That speaker was Edwin Stanton because of the relationship that grace brought about in this. See, there is grace, and then there is walking around in your life with a grudge. If your mind only focuses like on how you can get back, how you can get one up, you will never live a life of grace that you're called to. It is not about winning. Now, open your Bibles, Genesis chapter 29. Genesis 29. Uh, Genesis 29, what we looked at so far in there is that Jacob has found a hot girl. He worked seven years for her because he didn't have the bride price. He couldn't afford 
afford her. So he works seven years. On the wedding night, they do the switcheroo, and he gets the ugly older sister, Leah. After a week of celebration, they give him the younger daughter, Rachel, as well. But he's got to work another seven years to actually pay for her as well. And so you have this guy married to two sisters, and this is what ensues. Genesis 29, starting in verse 31, which is where we left last week. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated... Now, the word here, hated, doesn't mean hated like we think hated. It means unloved in the terms that he loved Rachel more. Uh, Leah was not his preference. He doesn't look at her because he doesn't think she's pretty. He stays out late. He doesn't talk to her. He deplores this wife. This is true of many marriages today. And you begin to now see the rivalry that takes place between Leah and Rachel. What happens is Leah can have lots of children, and Rachel can't. And Rachel wants children, but Rachel has Jacob. And Leah wants Jacob, but she only gets children. So they just want what the other sister has. This goes all the way back to Jacob and Esau, how they both just wanted what each other had. And it's really painful in the text to watch Leah because she is so unloved. And again, like I told you last week, before you feel too bad for her, this is her fault. Jacob never pursued her, didn't love her, didn't want to marry her, and he only got her by a trick. People say things like, well, the Bible is primitive and it's so outdated. Really? Right. Too many women think today just like Leah. You know, if if I trick him, he will love me. If I go to bed with him, he will love me. If I get pregnant, he will love me. That is not true. Men and women are different. Most normal women think sex and love are related. Do most men in our culture think that way? No. Ladies, no. They don't think that way. Do men only go to bed with women that they love? No. Men go to bed with women who are breathing. That's (laughs) how it works. A man will sleep with the woman they hate, a woman they don't know, a woman they don't like, a woman they think is ugly. Men will sleep with strangers. Most women won't. Some will, but most women won't. Men and women are different. Women usually see sex and intimacy as being related, and that's a good thing because they are, and the scriptures say that they are. A lot of women today think, well, if I sleep with him, if I get pregnant by him, he's going to love me. That's Leah's thinking. Well, he must love me. He is sleeping with me. No. And this is a really harsh message for a lot of women in our culture today because their their understanding of men is just so wrong. Most men will go to bed with anyone. This is why you wait for the I do, and then you show him why it was so good to wait. You will see Jacob repeatedly go go to bed with the woman he hates all of his life. And I would think it's better to be single than in a relationship with a man who doesn't love you or worse, even hate you. This is why I think today women's magazines, they're all crap. That's all that they are. They're all written by Leah. You know, perform well in bed, 10 sex secrets, pump out the kids. He will love you, sign Leah. No, that is not true. He hates her. He always does. So when the Lord saw that Leah was hated and God saw this, he opened her womb. But Rachel was barren and Leah conceived and bore a son. So who had sex with Leah? Yeah, okay. I know you're in a church. You're thinking, ah, oh, it's, it's got to be Jesus. The answer is not Jesus. Okay. <laughs> Jacob. Jacob. How does Jacob feel about her? Hates her. You see, you got to drill this deep. Women don't get this. Oh, he said he loved me. Oh, why doesn't he stay? I slept with him. That's Leah. And, and she called his name Reuben. For she said, because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. Yeah, nope, not happening. Poor kid's name is Misery. Imagine, imagine that. You go to school for the first day. What's your name, Misery? Oh, that's bad. Sorry, you know, kid. You know, I think Leah is trying to name her kids in, in accord with Jacob's faith, so she's trying to learn. I mean, she's probably more spiritual than Rachel, her sister, but it's not saying much. It's like trying to find the skinniest sumo wrestler. None of it's really that impressive. Right? This is a woman using children to make her husband fall in love with her. Verse 33, she conceived again. What? How does that? Who had sex with her? Jacob. Jacob. Right. She's not the Virgin Mary. 
Jacob keeps going to bed with the woman he hates and bore a son and said, because the Lord has heard that I am hated, still not preferred, he has given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon, meaning he heard, meaning God's, this is related to the root word for God's providential care for the unfortunate. Okay, verse 34, again she conceived and bore a son. It is amazing how that keeps happening. And said, "This now this time my husband will be attached to me because I have borne him three sons. So she's like, oh, maybe he'll stay with me. That, that'll be good. Therefore, his name was called Levi. Levi means attached, like maybe my husband will be attached to me. Verse 35, and she conceived again. It's just like, that's incredible, like that old show. That's incredible. And bore a son and said, this time I will praise the Lord. So she gives up on Jacob. She starts focusing on herself, God, and the kids. Happens all the time today. She said, and therefore, she called his name Judah. Judah means praise says then she ceased bearing now there's no reason given why she ceased bearing maybe she put on a few pounds jacob doesn't think she's pretty anyway maybe just stopped sleeping with her like that but now you go to chapter 30 and this switches to a competition and you get to rachel chapter 30 verse 1 when rachel saw that she bore jacob no children she envied her sister envy is not grace all right she said to jacob give me children or i shall die like it's his fault, right? He sleeps with leah he sleeps with rachel leah's just pumping out kids you know obviously his plumbing is working He's like, baby, this is your problem. It's not mine. Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel, and he said, am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? What you see him not do is he doesn't pray with his wife. He doesn't hold his wife when she's going through this pain. And the only time he mentions God at this point is trying to get her anger not to go towards him but towards God. Verse 3, and she said, here is my servant Bilhah. Right? So remember, Bilhah means unconcerned or, or stupid. Here's my stupid servant. Go into her so that she may give birth on my behalf that even I uh, may have children through her. This is a play out of Abraham and Sarah's book right here. When Jacob's mom, Rebecca, couldn't have children, what did Isaac, his dad, do? He prayed for her. God opens her womb. That's how Jacob actually got here. But Jacob doesn't pray. And so Rachel takes a play out of Sarah's handbook. Verse, verse 4. So she gave him her servant Bilhah as a wife who called it his wife? Rachel, not God. And Jacob went into her. There you go. Jacob's like, I'll sleep with her. Cool, baby. Here I go. Guys, some guys think, oh, this would be a dream come true. My wife, give me another woman. No, this is a nightmare. This is a nightmare. It just, it just gets worse and worse. Man, you need to be the spiritual leaders in your home. When something is wrong, you call it wrong, and you stick with it being wrong. When it's wrong, no matter how much pressure is put on you, you are to lead your homes. <sighs> and Bilhah conceived and bore Jacob a son. Then Rachel said, God has judged me and has also heard my voice and given me a son. Therefore, she called his name Dan. Now, isn't it odd how we can rationalize anything in our lives? We sin, sometimes it works out, and we think, oh, God must have been behind it. Well, no, I'm not supposed to sleep with that person, but they became a Christian. Well, I'm not supposed to cheat, but I got an A. Oh, praise Jesus. Believers do this all the time. Sin, if it works, we legitimize it. Dan means judged. Verse 7, Rachel's servant Bilhah conceived again. How did that happen? Sex with who? Jacob. There you go. And bore a second son. Then Rachel said, with mighty wrestlings, I have wrestled. She's not the one wrestling with Jacob. Wrestled with my sister and have prevailed. Literally, this means I have won. Like the kids are a competition. There's no grace here. She called his name Neftali. This means wrestling or my struggle. So you got a couple kids here. One's, one's like misery and one's like struggle. Poor kids on the playground. Verse 9, when Leah saw that she had ceased marrying children, she took her servant Zilpah and gave her to Jacob as a wife. Who called his wife? Leah, not God. She's like, oh, crap, we need more women. <laughs> Call the bullpen. Get the second string out here. They've been warming up. Get them out here. 
Then Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a son. I wonder how that happened. And Leah said, good fortune has come. So she called his name Gad. Gad means luck. That's like naming your kid Vegas or, or Reno or Powerball or Lotto. Hey, Lotto, what's up? That, that's what it is. As Christians, we believe in a good God. We don't believe in luck. Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a second son. How does that happen? Sex. With who? There you go. And Leah said, happy am I, for women have called me happy, so she called his name Asher. Asher means happy. She's not happy for the kid. She's happy that she's beating her sister in the whole baby-making game. And then in verse 14, you got this weird little side interlude, and we'll just hit it. Uh, in the days of the wheat harvest, Reuben, who was the firstborn, went out and found mandrakes in the field and brought them to his mother, Leah. Then Rachel said to Leah, please give me some of your son's mandrakes. Now, Mandrakes, they were thought to contain narcotic substances. Uh, in the ancient world, they actually used them for medicine in these ancient times. It had a strong fragrance, had a forked root and a little torso, so, and looked like a little person. So people thought it had like these aphrodisiac powers. Here's an artist's representation of one. And it seems like, hello. Right? Got to shave some of the burrs off me, but hello. All right. Naked. And then uh, here's, here's one in a pot. Ta-da. Vanna, can you turn the number, right? That's right, right there. That's the, you know, actually, in, in Greek culture, Aphrodite, the goddess Aphrodite, who was the goddess of love, was given the title Lady of the Mandrake. Now, uh, the word for mandrake in the Hebrew scriptures, it's very closely related to the word for sexual love. Verse 15, but she said to her, is the small matter that you have taken away my husband, would you take away my son's mandrakes also? It's like adult sisters, and they argue like they're five. You took my husband like Barbies when we were five. I hate you. You, you know, you, you, get, you get some plums when I get my Barbies back. It's a crazy story. Rachel said, then he, then he may lie with you tonight in exchange for your son's mandrakes. Oh, so you got Rachel. He's scheduling the old man out like at the DMVs. Now serving number four. Leia, that's you. Number four, that's you. Okay. You get the idea. Jacob's not really in control of anything at this point. Verse 16. When Jacob came in from the field in the evening, Leia went out to him and said, you must come in to me for I have hired you with my son's mandrakes. And he's like, what? What does that even mean? Right? This is like Viagra 1.0, right there. People thought if you took mandrakes, you'd, you'd get pregnant. Kind of weird. My, my wife and I tried to have kids for a really long time. And at one point, someone gave her these earrings and said, you know, wear these earrings. Well, she wears them. Like, you know, not, not me, but I have sex with her, right? But yeah, wear these when you have sex, and you'll, and you'll make a baby. Just wear like, those are mandrakes. We're not wearing those earrings, and I'm not wearing them. Whatever, okay. Eventually, Rachel does get pregnant. But it is because of God's grace and not the mandrake. So it says, so we lay with her that night. That's with Leah. She's like, I paid good money for this. Jacob's like a former mandrake man. Right? And this is weird, right? You're thinking my family's not so jacked up. That's hopefully is what you're thinking. Verse 17. And God listened to Leah, and she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. Leah said, God has given me my wages because I gave my servant to my husband. Now, is that why she had a baby? No, she had a baby because of the grace of God. God doesn't smile on sin. They get it all mixed up. So she called his name Issachar. This means wages are hired. Verse 19, and Leah conceived again, and she bore Jacob a sixth son. Then Leah said, God has endowed me with a good endowment. Now my husband will honor me because I have borne him six sons. So you see in her life, she has gone from maybe he'll love me to maybe at least he'll stay to maybe uh, he'll just say thank you. Maybe that, that's what we'll get. She feels like she has to earn his affection. She called his name Zebulun, which means honor. In verse 21, afterwards she bore a daughter and called her name named Dinah. Dinah means justice. You'll see what this looks like in about four weeks. Verse 22. Then God remembered Rachel. See, when, God, when it says God remembers somebody in the scripture, and not that he ever forgot about them, it's that God is going to act in covenant faithfulness. God never forgot her, got her. Uh, God remembered Rachel, and God listened to her, so apparently Rachel started praying at some point. It'd be better if 
You know, she did it earlier rather than later, but she starts praying and opened her womb. She conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach because to not have kids in this culture was a disgrace. And she called his name Joseph. Joseph becomes prominent in the scriptures from Genesis 38 on. He's one of the most important people in the Bible. Saying, may the Lord add to me another son, which God actually does, but she dies bearing uh, Benjamin, who is her next son. Now, there's the story, right? You're like, wow. Anybody besides me? That's crazy, right? It's a crazy story. These sisters and their husband do their best to destroy each other, to kill each other, metaphorically speaking, because there's a lot of ways to kill someone. You can do it with harsh words, with gossip, or a baby war. When we start doing this and not living as a people of grace, and we start doing it day after day and week after week and month after month and year after year, you will find that where once you had a heart of love towards a spouse, a parent, a sibling, a friend, a business partner, you will now have a heart of stone. We convince ourselves that it is okay for us to walk around holding a grudge. But you know the only thing the scriptures give us the right to walk around holding is grace. That's the only thing we're allowed to walk around with. In a study in the Journal of Adult Development, they found that 75% of people surveyed believe they have been forgiven by God for their past mistakes and wrongdoing. But only 52% say they have, been, they have forgiven others around them. Even fewer, 43%, say they have actively sought forgiveness for the harms they know they have done to somebody else. That is just like this family. And you know what? Eventually in this, this is where you actually get the 12 tribes of Israel. If you didn't know anything about the Bible, if you didn't know any, any, if we didn't read this story this morning, and I said, I am going to show to you where the 12 tribes of Israel come out of and, you know, that are going to change the world. Would you have thought this? Okay, maybe you would have. I wouldn't have. All right. Like, yeah, I totally think that. No, it's, they're, they're crazy. They're totally messed up. And yet, I mean, this is like, this is like just Jerry Springer on crack is what we're reading here. This is nuts. The priesthood will eventually come from Levi. The kings come from Judah. Jesus, who is the promised son, comes through this family. Jesus Christ is actually a descendant of Leah and Jacob, not Rachel. A dirty old man and an unloved, hated woman. And what this tells you is that God's promise is that your family does not define your future. God does. God defines it. Some of you may have awful families, and by God's grace, you have grown to be better than they are. But some of you, you take an awful family you've grown up in and you use it as an excuse to be ungodly, lazy, mean, and dysfunctional. And you can't do that. We don't have the right because we're to live as a people of grace. And if you have a terrible family, God calls you to be the one who starts to live differently. God breaks those chains, offers you grace, and grows you into who you're supposed to be. See, the story constantly in the scriptures is we sin, we ruin ourselves, we all contribute to the decay of the world that's around us. And yet Jesus saves us from ourselves. See, Jesus is king and Lord. He comes to conquer our enemies of Satan, sin, and death. And this is how Jacob's family, this messed up family, becomes the family of promise. It is simply grace. I mean, if we said, you know, we're going to pick a family for Jesus to eventually come out of, none of us would pick this family. We'd pick somebody else. I mean, seriously, anybody else should be better than this. Somebody who drove away from the trailer park, right? But not the ones that are still living in it, marrying all their cousins. Because that's what, whatever, okay. See, in the scripture, these people there are not our heroes. They are examples. We don't put our faith in people. That's why we put our faith in Jesus Christ. These are petty, vindictive, angry, evil men and women, and they are just like you and me, just like us. But God extends his grace to them just like he extends his grace to you and I. The question becomes is will we be a people who actually live and walk in that grace? This, again, is why the cross is so important because the cross is the place where we see what grace looks like when it is actually lived out. The cross is grace and it's victory over sin and death and competition and resentment. 
In Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 through 15, Paul says, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open chain by triumphing over them in him. You know what this tells you? It tells you that centuries before Jesus ever came, the cross was still good news for Rachel and Leah and their maidservants and their offspring and Jacob. When Jesus comes and lives and dies and rises from the dead, the cross is good news for Peter who denies him. It's good news for the Roman centurion who helps hang him on that cross. And then centuries later, the cross is still good news for you and I and our messed up lives, always trying to be better than somebody else because we're not better than anybody else. There is Jesus and then there's all the rest of us. We are all over here, and Jesus is here. At the cross, we learn grace. The cross is where a place where a forgiven people receive grace to actually learn to forgive others. In Ephesians 2, 17 and 19, Paul says, And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens and the, and the saints and members of the household of God. Eugene Peterson says of this verse, Christ brought us together through his death on the cross. The cross got us to embrace, and that was the end of the hostility. That is the end of the hostility. Jesus died, and you don't have to crucify your spouse or your neighbor or your friend or your business partner when they do something that irritates you because Jesus died. Nobody else has to. At the cross, we see what grace looks like when it loses, when it wins, and when it forgives. And I believe people in our world are still hoping to live next to, to sit next to to be in community with people like that. And that only happens when we are people who understand humility by laying ourselves at the foot of Christ, at the foot of this cross. And when we do that, again, we understand humility and grace and the love of God, and our lives begin to actually look different because we have placed ourselves in his gracious hands. You and I must be a people who live by the grace of God because that is the only way that we are saved. And once we are, we realize we didn't save ourselves. He saved us, which means we in turn go out and live a life of grace to those around us. That's what we're called to. This is one of the reasons why every week we invite you guys to communion. Communion is the place where you break that cracker like Christ's body is broken for us. You dip it in the wine of the grape juice. It reminds us of his blood that was shed for you and I so we can truly be this people of grace. The band's going to come up. They do a couple songs, and as they do, we invite you to take communion. There'll be some deacons and elders in the back. And if you guys need prayer for anything, maybe even live in a a life that's not filled with grace at all, and you're just trying to find a way to get back at somebody who hurts you, and you've got this terrible grudge, they would love to pray with you. You know, maybe maybe you have some situation in your life that's a little nutty right now. Well, you know what? Go back and pray with them. They'd love to be able to help reset you and focus you where Christ wants you to focus on grace. On grace. There's offering boxes on the sidewall in the back. We give because God gave so much to us. Giving then is simply part of our worship, so you have the opportunity every week to do that. We're not passing the plate. It's a response to what God has done. And then there's some food and stuff in the back. We invite you guys to grab something to eat and meet some other people because when we have been saved, when we live this life, this life of grace, we do it with other people around us. Jesus saves us individually, but he doesn't intend for you and I to ever live this life as individuals. We live in a gospel-centered community focused on him, living outside of these walls the grace that has been extended to us. And so we invite you guys to start that by just grabbing something simple to eat in the back and beginning to do that. Our God is good, our God is gracious, and he has never left us without hope. 
He has constantly sought us and bought us and brought us home. And we are to be a people who live this grace as well. And I encourage you guys this week. It is not about competition. It is not about getting back at somebody who's hurt you. It is about learning to live the grace that has been extended to you, and you extend that to those around you. Let's pray. Father, this morning, I ask that we would be a people who understand better the grace that you have bestowed upon us as your people, that we would live lives that greatly glorify you and what you have done and what you continue to do in and through our lives. Father, for those in this room who have had just terrible things happen to them and they have such a hard time letting those things go, I ask that today they would better understand your grace and that those things could start to fall off and that your grace would begin to refill them with what they truly need because a life lived without grace is no life at all. Father, I ask that you would take us as a community of believers and have us encourage one another to live by your grace, to honor you by how we treat not just the people in this room but in everybody we come into contact with because we understand that you are on display by how we live outside of these walls. And I ask that you would remind us and teach us that we are to be a people who live on mission for your name wherever we are today like we started at the very beginning, I ask that you remind us that our hope is in you. And you have never left us without hope. And that we would understand the importance and the depth of the cross and the resurrection, and most importantly, the importance of the grace that you have freely given to us, and that we would freely give that grace to those around us as well. We ask these things in your son's gracious and good name. Amen.